stand by. We'll be streaming live soon. Hi, glad you've joined us. Um, I'm Betty McKinney with Rick Bonfin Ministries, and this is the first of 12 in a series that I'm going to be teaching from the beautiful land of Israel behind me. I'm doing a series of 12 teachings that we're calling In the Footsteps of Jesus. And we're coming to you from our studio in Athens, Georgia, but we've got a great shot of the shepherd's field in Bethlehem behind me here. Um, and in the footsteps of Jesus, what I want to do is take you through various locations in the land of Israel that are um, key areas in the life of our Lord and Savior Jesus and also other historical um, biblical figures, which I'm going, to, um, I'm going to be all over the place today. I am going to talk about Jesus, but I'm also going to talk about other places in the Word where Bethlehem figures. What is Bethlehem? Bethlehem is um, it's a town in the mountains. You, you might be surprised when you see all these mountains. You just When you pictured the Christmas story, you didn't think about mountains. But yes, it is in the mountains. It's only six miles south of Jerusalem. So that is the mountainous area of Israel. Bet-lechem. Bet in Hebrew means house, and lechem means bread. So Bethlehem means house of bread. We're going to go in a minute to the book of Ruth where we find Ruth gleaning in the fields of Boaz. Why? Because lots of wheat was grown in these um, terraced farms in in Bethlehem, the house of bread. Bethlehem is unique in that it is one of the few cities that appears across 2,000 years of history in the Hebrew Bible. From the patriarchs all the way to the prophets. Today, the city of Bethlehem, I guess I need to go this way, a little bit of the city of Bethlehem is behind me. It is uh, much larger than is shown in this picture. It has about 40,000 um, inhabitants. It's a Palestinian authority enclave, and it's actually set off from Israel by a um, controversial security wall and checkpoints. In 2001, the Israeli army surrounded the Church of the Nativity after Palestinian gunmen barricaded themselves inside. <laughs> That's just one of the stories that happened in Bethlehem with 160 hostages at, for 40 days. And a priest made soup from lemon trees and oil from the lamps to keep the hostages alive. <laughs> so Bethlehem um, is not a place these days of, of peace and calm. It's a very controversial place. There's a lot of resentment and controversy about the wall that surrounds it and about the fact that it is a um, Palestinian enclave. So it's got just layers and layers and layers of history. But let's, so I, as I said, I'm going to go to several places in the Word and try to um, talk about some of the amazing events that happened in Bethlehem. I'm going to start in a spot that you might not think, but I want you to recall what happened when God's people had gone so far away from him that he decided that he was going to remove his presence from the temple in Jerusalem. And that's in Ezekiel. Um, I'm going to start with Ezekiel 10. Just read a couple verses here to give us a context. Ezekiel 10. Then I looked, and behold, in the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, something like a sapphire stone, in appearance resembling a throne, appear above them. And he spoke to the man clothed in linen and said, Enter between the whirling wheels under the cherubim 
and fill your hands with coals of fire from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. This is God's judgment that's going to come upon Jerusalem and upon the people of God. Verse 4, Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple. Continuing on in verse 17, When the cherubim stood still, the wheels would stand still. When they rose up, the wheels would rise with them, for the spirit of the living beings was in them. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. Moving on, the story kind of it sort of jumps <laughs> into um, Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 12. Thus you will know that I am the Lord, for you have not walked in my statutes, nor have you executed my ordinances, but have acted according to the ordinances of the nations around you. Verse 22, Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the Lord, of the Lord God of Israel hovered over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain, which is east of the city, which is the Mount of Olives. And so it was like the glory of God was hesitant to leave, did not want to leave, but he was being driven out by the idolatry and the um, unbelief of the people. So this is where the glory which had been right there over the temple in Jerusalem in the center of the land, just six miles north of Bethlehem, where we are now, could be seen from miles away. It departed from the temple, hovered over the Mount of Olives, and then finally dissipated. The glory of God has left the land. The only nation on earth that the glory of God actually rested and tabernacled in their midst, six miles north of where I am right now, People came from all, all nations to see this amazing thing that the very glory of the living God burned day and night over the temple and now it has departed. Will it ever return? How can God's glory come back to Israel? Well, that brings us to Bethlehem because on one, maybe not December 25th, but maybe in September or October, maybe one fall night, the glory of God came back not to Jerusalem, but to the place, a location close to where I'm standing. To see that, we have to go to Luke chapter 2. hope you're following with me. hope this makes sense. Let's, um, let's just go ahead and read the story beginning with um, verse 7. Or let's start with 6. And it came about that while they were there in Bethlehem, in the little, in the little town behind me, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. Who are we talking about? Obviously, Mary and Joseph, right? They've traveled um, by, she's ridden a donkey, and they've traveled about 50 miles from north down here to Bethlehem because they both are of the house and lineage of David, and they have to come to the city of David, Bethlehem, to um, register with the census and to pay taxes. <laughs> taxes is why Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Some things never change. So here they are in Bethlehem. And it says in verse 7, And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And in that same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields behind me, keeping watch over their flock, by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the 
glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And suddenly, verse 13, there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And it came about when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds began saying to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So all these years after the, temp- the glory left the temple, it comes back to this shepherd's field. Who is the glory of the Lord first revealed to? Remember, it used to be in the, in the glorious temple in Jerusalem. Now it comes to some humble, dirty, smelly shepherds. <laughs> this was one of the, the lowest pay grade jobs you could get in Israel at the time. Sitting out in the field day after day, night after night, watching sheep eat grass and making sure that they don't that they're safe. And here to these humble shepherds keeping watch over their flocks, the glory returns from heaven and announces to them that not just the presence, the glory, the Shekinah glory that was over the temple, but the Lord Jesus Christ himself, God in form of man, has come to dwell in their midst. And they are the first ones that go into the town of Bethlehem and lay their eyes upon the glory of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So here is where the glory came back to Israel, not for Israel only, but for the entire world. Such a humble place. Just as a side note, real close to here is a place called the Herodium. And that was a huge um, structure that Herod the Great built in tribute to himself and as a burial ground for himself. And he made this huge hall that would... um, host a gigantic parade so people could, they could bring his body through and everyone could laud his, his wonderfulness and then they could bury him there. Just, it always strikes me. I've been to Israel 14 times and I've seen these places so many times and it always strikes me that where the Lord came to was the humblest. Whoops, what just happened? Okay. He came to the most humble and unexpected places, places like this little town of Bethlehem and the shepherd's field, and to shepherds who nobody knew their names, nobody knew who they were, they weren't important, but that's where he decided to show his glory and manifest himself after so many years. Not to the Herodium. <laughs> okay, so that is, that's one thing I like to, to talk about when we um, go to Bethlehem. This is the place where the Lord's glory came back. Now I want to go back even further in um, history. (laughs) Back to the book of Ruth. And I'm going to preface it by reading the prophecy about what's going to happen here in Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11. It says, Then a shoot, I'm reading verse 1, will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. 
who is this shoot coming out of the line of Jesse, who is the father of David? Of course, this is a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was announced by the angels, the multitude of angels, to the shepherds. Then we find um, in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, the genealogy of this Savior, this shoot from the line of Jesse. Matthew chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. To Abraham was born Isaac, to Isaac Jacob, to Jacob Judah and his brothers. By the way, we are in the land of Judah. The tribe of Judah had this area where Bethlehem is located. To Judah were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar. To Perez was born Hezron, to Hezron Ram, to Ram was born Aminadab, to Aminadab Nashon, to Nashon Salmon, to Salmon was born Boaz. Ah, now we're where I want to get to. Boaz by Rahab. We'll talk about Rahab when we get to Jericho. And to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth, and to Obed Jesse, and to Jesse was born David the king. This is why Bethlehem is called the city of David, because this is where David was born. This is where Jesse and his family lived. And who, how did Jesse and David come into being? Because of a woman named Ruth. <laughs> You're like, Betty, why are you reading this genealogy? You know, all these names that are so unpronounceable. It, it shows us the prophetic move of God, how he has ordered from the very beginning what seems all wrong and chaotic and full of trouble and trial or, or just um, coincidence results in God's perfect plan and that the prophetic word of God in our lives cannot be stopped. God ordered this line of genealogy and it just so happened? No, it was God's prophetic plan that Joseph and Mary, both of the house of David, would travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem and Jesus would be born there. But that started way back in this genealogy. God had it all worked out throughout, throughout the years. So we're going to go and finish our teaching this morning by looking into this little book of Ruth. And you guys out there, if you think Ruth is just a chick flick, it's not. <laughs> it is one of the most powerful types of the gospel that you can find in the Old Testament. And I love the book of Ruth because it, um, it just shows us the prophetic work of God and it, just, it shows us so many things and it is a type of the gospel. So just to sort of to summarize chapters 1 and 2, and then we're going to get into chapter 3. In chapter 1, a woman named Naomi lived with her husband in Bethlehem. But there was a famine. Remember I told you lots of wheat. It's the house of bread. There was a famine. And people were hungry. So instead of staying there and trusting in God and praying to God for his provision, they did something, they did their own thing. They did something that wasn't smart. They moved to Moab, east of the Jordan River, where there was food to be had. So in unbelief, Naomi and her husband Elimelech went to Moab. Um, it just became one bad thing after another. There in Moab, their two sons meet two Moabite women, and they get married to these, to these women, but both of the sons die. The one who married the woman named Ruth 
His name was, um, sorry, this isn't, Malon. His name was Malon. That's chapter 1, verse 5. His name means sickly or weakling. <laughs> yeah, poor guy. Malon died. The other, the other son of Naomi and Elimelech died. So there they were in this land, no sons to take care of them in their old age. Then Elimelech died. And Naomi says, what am I going to do? I have to go back to Bethlehem. I have to go back to my home. And her daughter-in-law, instead of Ruth, instead of going back to her family, she says, I'm going with you. <laughs> I, I see something in you. Even though you've made a mistake, even though your life has turned into chaos and tragedy, there is something about you, Naomi. You have a God that I want to be my God, and I want your people to be my people, and I'm going with you. So Naomi and Ruth travel from Moab back here to Bethlehem. But they're just two helpless women. In those days, women couldn't go get a career and a job. They were going to be totally dependent on someone, God helping them somehow. If God doesn't intervene in their lives, there will be no future. So let's go to chapter 3 and read some verses of chapter 3. They are now living in Bethlehem. And it says, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? And now, is not Boaz our kinsman, with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. And it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what you shall do. And she said to her, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. And it happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward. And behold, a woman was laying at his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she said, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. Then he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. And now it is true. I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you, as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So she laid his feet until morning, and rose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Again he said, Give me the cloak that is on you and hold it. So she held it, and he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did it go, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said, Do not go to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then she, meaning Naomi, said, Wait, my daughter until you know how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest until he has settled it to
today. This is a real story. It really happened. <laughs> Naomi, Ruth, Boaz, he's my man, by the way. These are real people. And Ruth becomes the great-grandmother, the grandmother of King David. It's documented in Jewish history. These are real people. But it's also a powerful prophetic story and act here. It shows us a beautiful picture of the gospel. And that's what I want us to, to look at here. Um, these events that happen might seem really strange. What? She goes up to the threshing floor. She lays down at his feet. That just seems like odd behavior. And then she asks him to redeem her. What, what does all that mean? They understood perfectly in that culture what, what they were doing because it was all based on a law from the law of Moses called the law of redemption, which comes out of Leviticus 25, which says that if someone was forced to sell their land, which Ruth and, or which Naomi and Elimelech had done, they had sold their land and fled to Moab, and when Ruth, when Ruth came back with Naomi, they were women. They couldn't buy the land back. They didn't have any resources. They also didn't have the legal ability as women to do so. So how could they come back and join their people and have a place to live and have provision for their lives? That's what the law of redemption provided for in the law of Moses. If someone had to leave their land, the property could be bought back or redeemed by the closest relative who qualified and who met the conditions. So the relative would pay the debt that they couldn't pay. And that relative was called in Hebrew a goel, G-O-E-L, goel, which is translated redeemer. So to redeem means to buy back. Isn't that exactly what Jesus has done? We, we were cast out. We were cast out of the garden. <laughs> we were cast out of that perfect paradise that he had created for us to live in perfect union with him. And we were cast into a world that's, that's dominated by the evil one, Satan. And we want to get back into the land. We want to get back to our home that God made for us. But we can't buy it. <laughs> we can't get ourselves back there. But Jesus bought us back. He bought, bought us back from the devil. He restored our inheritance to us. So this is, like I say, just the most powerful foretaste of the gospel that we can find in the Old Testament. The other thing where she lays down at his feet and, and she basically says in verse 9, she says, spread your covering over your maid for you are a close relative. She's basically saying, will you marry me? <laughs> she's asking her to be, she's asking him, will you be my Goel? Will you be my redeemer? Will you buy me back? That was based also on the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 25 that stated that if a man died without any children, which her husband, Naomi's son, Malon, did, then the closest relative was re actually required to marry the widow so that the one who died would still have a lineage. The first child given to that couple would actually be counted as the first husband's son so that he would be said to have had a lineage that goes on and his lineage doesn't stop. That's called the law of Leveret marriage. Um, so she is asking him, will you abide by this law? You are a close relative. Will you marry me? Will you give me children? Our first child will be counted as Malon's son, and then we will continue on the family line together. 
And he said, well, there's one that's closer than I. You see, he's, he's, he's talking about the law because there was a structure to it of who was the most qualified redeemer or goel. He said, there's one closer than I, but there's always the right of refusal. And I know that Boaz was hoping that the first one would refuse because he wanted to marry Ruth. <laughs> so I hope you understand. I hope I made that clear how, how this is... Um, the story is unfolding, that Ruth is, she's, this has all been prophetic, as I said, by the hand of God. All these circumstances that have befallen this family, God already knew in advance that he was planning to bring Ruth into this place of Bethlehem to encounter this wealthy landowner who had a wheat field, Boaz, to bring them together to be in the family line of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But this picture here where she goes up to the threshing floor, lays down at his feet, asks him to redeem her. Um, let's, let's apply this personally, personally to ourselves and deeply to ourselves. For a moment, see yourself in Ruth's place. See Jesus in the place of Boaz. It is possible for us, it is actually necessary, <laughs> essential for us to come to Jesus the same way Ruth came to Boaz, to come to his feet, to come humbly and quietly and reverently to his feet and ask him to cover us with his righteousness, to ask him to pay a debt we cannot pay, to be our redeemer, to actually say, Jesus, will you marry me? (laughs) Will you make me yours? Will you take me into your family? Will you become mine? and I will become yours. Will you restore me? Will you restore back to me everything that's been lost through sin, through mistakes, through sins of others, through the attack of the world and the devil? Will you restore all of that? Because I'm helpless to get it back for myself. And will you give me an inheritance and a hope for the future? So you see how the gospel is just embedded in this story of Ruth as she comes to, to Boaz. Now, not just as I said, not just anyone could be a redeemer. Ruth couldn't have gone to just any man in Bethlehem. It had to be the right relative. He had to be qualified. So let's, let's look just a, for a moment at what the, the law said, a goel or a redeemer had the qualifications he had to meet in order to perform this task. Number one, he must be a kinsman. He must be related by blood to those he redeems. Number two, he must be able to perform the task of redemption. Meaning, if, if he was broke, if he had no money, <laughs> if he had no ability to buy back the land, then he, he, was not, he would not be able to be a goel. He has to have the power, the resources, the credentials, the authority, the means. Number three, he must be willing to perform the task. No one could be forced to be a goel or a redeemer. There was a right of refusal. So he had to do it by his own free will, not by coercion. Number four, if he was going to be the redeemer, the goel, he must assume all of the debt, not part. He couldn't say, well, I can loan you this much, (laughs) or I can help you this much, but no, no more. He had to take care of the entire debt, Um, it's all or nothing. And number five, 
he must not be in debt himself. He must be a free man, not in servitude himself, where he would have to turn around then and um, have to take care of other debts. So he must be a totally free man. Well, those seem like some pretty strict um, rules for a goel. And, but it's a wondrous thing to meditate on how Jesus Christ, our kinsman redeemer, exactly and profoundly meets every one of these requirements. Number one, he must be related by blood. <laughs> Who is Jesus? He is the son of man. He is related by flesh and blood to those he redeemed. So why are these genealogies so important? Why did I read all these names in, in Matthew? Because it proves, it is a record that Jesus is related by blood, even to Gentiles. <laughs> there are four, four Gentiles in that storyline, in that genealogy. So that means he's related, he's related to the Jewish people by blood, but he's also related to us Goys, us Gentiles, by blood. And it's documented in the scripture. So we know that he meets the first requirement. He, is, he came from heaven. He left his place in heaven. He took on humanity. He was born a baby in Bethlehem in human flesh and became related by blood to the human race. Number two, he must be able to perform the task of redemption. Um, to meet that requirement, I'm going to quote Revelation 5. 2 through 5, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Talking about the book here, that's the deed to planet earth. Because God gave earth to Adam and he said, You be my steward. You and your be fruitful and multiply and and watch over my world and be its be my king over this earth but Adam sold the farm he gave the deed to Satan and now 1 John 5.19 says Satan the evil one has dominion over the whole earth so this is the scene in, in heaven in Revelation who can, who can get the deed back <laughs> who can break the seals and get the deed to planet earth back it, everything's been lost so continuing on no one in heaven on earth was able to open the book or to look into it and I began to weep greatly. This is John who was seeing this revelation, John the Beloved. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. He is able to buy back the deed to planet Earth. Number three is he must be willing. He must be willing. He can't be coerced. What did Jesus say in John 10:17? For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. He is willing to be our Redeemer. No one took his life. He gave it. Number four, he must assume all of the debt. Hebrews 10:12 tells us, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. On the cross, he said, it is finished. But that also can be translated, it is paid in full. Paid in full. 
Amen? And finally, he must be a free man, not in servitude himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin. He is not under the dominion of the evil one. He's the only one not under the dominion. The only human being who's ever lived who was not under the dominion or the slavery of the slave keeper, Satan. He's a free man. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God. So does Jesus meet all the requirements of a Goel, of a Redeemer? (laughs) Yes, yes, and yes. Jesus is our Boaz. (laughs) And in this story of Ruth, Boaz brought redemption, restoration, and fruitfulness to both Ruth the Gentile and to Naomi the Jew. He really is the great kinsman redeemer of both Jew and Gentile, of everyone who places themselves humbly at his feet, asks him to cover them with his righteousness. So if you haven't spent some time at Jesus' feet lately, I recommend that you do. (laughs) So to, to conclude this, I just want to spend a minute or two on verse 18, which is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. It is a verse that changed my life. After Ruth went and did this seemingly odd thing, but now we understand it isn't so odd as we understand the Mosaic Law and what it all meant, she still didn't know what was going to happen because he said, well, there is another one who is a closer relative and he has first rights to you, so I need to go find out if he wants you because I'll have to let him take you if he wants you. So she goes home. She loves Boaz dearly. He's already demonstrated his love and his care for her. So we know it's in her heart, but she doesn't know how it's going to turn out. So she goes home, and her mother-in-law, Naomi, says, Wait, my daughter, until you know how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest until he has settled it today. I love how she says, the man. I, I circled that in my Bible years ago. Remember what I told you about Ruth's first husband? His name was Malon. His name meant weakling. He wasn't exactly someone you would say, the man. (laughs) But Naomi said, this man is not a weakling. He is not sickly. He will not rest. In other words, if you submit yourself to true godly authority, your problem is taken care of. Boaz is a man. (laughs) And Boaz, as I've said, is a type of Jesus. When we submit our problem, our need, our life to Jesus, this is what the word says. Wait until you know how the matter turns out because the man, Jesus, your Lord, your Redeemer, will not rest until he has settled it. When I submit myself in faith to Jesus and I look to him as my hope and my authority and my redeemer, he will take care of it. He will. I can count on it. It is as good as done. Wait means you've done your part. You've gone to Jesus. You've told him of your need. You've expressed your confidence and your hope and your trust in him. Now you need to wait for him. He is faithful He won't forget. He won't get distracted. He won't procrastinate. (laughs) He won't let you down. 
And I said this changed my life because, like all of us, we've had experiences with people that we put our trust in, someone we hoped would come through for us, and they didn't. Or they just sort of went passive and, and didn't seem to care after they had told us they did care. But that when one years ago, 20, 30 years ago, I came across this and I took it as a personal promise to me that this is who Jesus is to me. He isn't like any fallible human being in my life, no matter how well-intentioned they may be, how much they might want to try and help me, they're often going to let me down. But this man will not rest until he has settled it. He will never let me down. He will never forget about me. (laughs) But Naomi, she says, now, wait. (laughs) Wait and see. That's sometimes the hardest part. You know, we're going to, we would see if we went into Ruth 4 that Boaz goes to the gate and he deals with the other relative and he takes care of the matter. I think when I read this, I would probably have run to the gate and beat him there. (laughs) Try to help God solve my problem, right? But no, the word is wait. Wait on him. Trust him to take care of it. You don't need to get involved anymore. You've turned it over to him. So Naomi's word to Ruth and to me and to you today, I hope, is do as he tells you. Then wait, rest, trust. He will take care of it. Once you turn your need over, you have to know he will do it. Stay under his authority. His authority is to cover you and protect you and bless you. So don't get out from under it. Don't try and fix it yourself. So that's just one of the beautiful lessons from the book of Ruth that took place in this lovely area of Bethlehem. I hope that you can visit the real Bethlehem, but I hope you've enjoyed. Um, and, and by the way, when we go to Israel, we don't go into the town. It really isn't a very pleasant place. I love being out in the shepherd's field where these wonderful stories took place of Ruth in the field of Boaz and the glory of God coming to the shepherds. Um, so God bless you today. We'll see you next time in Nazareth. Yeah.